Hello and welcome back to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 225, Zoom, playing board games remotely. I'm Sean, and with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. We record these shows live Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop, and we love it if you join us. So first off, let me wish everyone a happy holidays to everyone out there, no matter what it is you celebrate during this season. Now, since not everyone has the privilege of being able to gather together during these holidays, tonight we're going to be sharing some great games you can play together online through tools like Zoom and various digital game tables. After that, we've got a review of one such game, Monstrosity, followed by a review of the Sea Monster edition of Seas of Havoc. We wrap up with a talk about the games we've been playing recently, including more fun with the Bah Humbug and the 12 Days of Christmas and Sean's first play of Marrakesh and more. Well, we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. Find related links in our show notes at tabletopbellhop.com slash episode 225. That's episode 225. Some of those links will be affiliate links, which cost you nothing but help support us. Also, some games discussed tonight will be review copies that we received from publishers. So before we get to the main topic, we do have two things I want to cover in the suggestion box. Welcome to this week's suggestion box. Here we share some of the most interesting feedback we've gotten in the last few weeks. First up, a thank you. Yeah, thanks to everyone for the kind words, the plethora of coffees and other support you showed during the holiday weekend sales that just went past. We got a ton of positive feedback through our tabletop gaming deal pages and social media accounts. There were some great deals this year, and we worked some long hours trying to find them all. And it's great to see that work appreciated. Also, a thank you goes out to the fans of the podcast who put up with us taking a month to focus our efforts on that side of the tabletop bellhop. At this point, due to the fact that both Christmas and New Year's fall on Mondays, we should be good to stay on our usual Wednesday night schedule. Again, for updates, just in case if something does come up, we will let people know first and foremost on our Discord, but also our social media accounts. Now, the deals aren't done either, so many places still have sales running until the end of the year, and I'm sure we'll see Boxing Day and New Year's sales as well. Now, the best one-stop shop for that would be our holiday sales landing page, which I'll be sure to link in the show notes. But you can also find it on the front page of tabletopbellhop.com. And for those of you here live looking to do some shopping after the show's done, I'm sure Deanna will drop a link in the chat room. Well, here's an interesting comment we got on our Racco review from Ruby. They write, my Racco game cards have information on them. Is this simply something for players to discuss? So this took some research. I, I had to look this one up. So thank you for the comment, uh, Ruby, or the question, I guess, in this case. Um, so I looked into it, and according to Board Game Geek, and, and Board Game Geek's usually pretty good, but for older games, you never know. I was managed to find at least 32 different versions of Racco that have been published over the years. Now, I'm guessing there may be other ones, especially internationally. Um, the game was released in 1956. Like, I knew it was an old game. I didn't realize it was that old. And those 32 different versions don't count the actual different versions, like Super Racco, uh, just Racco versions. So after some research and deep diving, which actually involved me looking at each version and looking at pictures to see if any had words on them, I was able to figure out that Ruby must have the 2006 Parker Brothers version of Racco. In addition to fun factos that let you learn something about every number in the game, 
The prime number cards are also special in this version. They're a different offset color. The main cards in that game are blue, while the prime number cards are green. And each of them has a special ability on them. And when you discard a, a prime number card, you get to do the special thing. Now, these include like taking an extra turn, um, the super nasty swap any two of your opponent's cards, uh, swap one of your cards with the opponent and so on. So there you go, Ruby. You do not have uh, you do have a legit version of Racco. Um, it is the 2006 Parker Brothers. And yes, the information on most of the cards is just, just a conversation start or something interesting, something to look at when it's not your turn. But you also get this cool ability that your prime numbers do something special. And I got to say, I'm jealous. Um, now that I've done this deep dive, I now want a copy of the 2006 Parker Brothers edition. Because like I say, it sounds a bit more like a gamer's game with a little more take that and adding a little bit of meat to Racco, which sounds awesome to me. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you to everyone who comments, shares, and interacts with our stuff wherever. Well, we're here to answer your gaming and game night questions tonight. The question comes from Brian at Fryban on X, who asked, Hi, Mo. Have you done an episode on board games that would be good to play remotely by Zoom or some similar app? Well, thanks for the question, Brian. Uh, well, we have talked about playing games online, uh, especially back near the start of the COVID-19 lockdowns. And we did an entire episode on being able to play games on the various online ways to play games like Boitajou and BGA. And there was a third one back then that was very popular, Sorvanti maybe. Um, and we've mentioned quite a few games that are good to play online during various recommendation episodes. We'll be like, oh, you should check out Codenames, and it's good for playing online. We've never actually tackled this as a standalone topic. So here we are tonight, and thank you for the topic suggestion. So while the COVID lockdowns are thankfully done for now, at least here, there are still yeah. many reasons you may want to play games remotely. Yeah, and the first one fits with that COVID lockdown thing, and that's honestly if you're sick. If you are actually sick, I think people have learned uh, even if it just feels like a common cold, the responsible thing to do is to stay home. Um, don't go out to public play events and find some other way to play or just don't play at all. We're here to give you other ways to play. So hopefully you get to keep gaming. But if you're sick, please stay home. Please get bed rest. Um, this goes for everything, not just gaming nights. I I haven't had to face the situation yet, but I'm I'm regretting or dreading, I think is the proper word, going out to one of our public play events and having to turn someone away because they're sick. Because I'm at that point now where I think it's my responsibility as a host. If someone's sick, I'm going to have to ask them to leave. It's just not socially and, and health, healthfully. I don't know the word here. It's just, it's just not responsible. Now, similarly, you may be perfectly healthy, but you might not have anyone local to play with. There may yeah. not be other gamers uh, near you or near enough you. Uh, similarly, uh, as we get into the winter season here in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, uh, we are getting into weather that can prevent people from traveling some of the distances that they might have been willing to travel in better yeah. weather. Uh, or for those, some of you in the Southern Hemisphere, you may already be dealing with the fires in Australia or whatever may prevent your traveling uh, from occurring, uh, even within local areas that you might normally yep. find yourself traveling in. I know in, in Canada, we tend to think of uh, short distances a little differently than other countries. Uh, for me, two hours is a normal, easy drive. For people in Britain, that's a day trip. So, yep. uh, you know, it's a little bit different for everybody. But if you aren't able to travel for whatever reason, digital uh, solutions exist that work wonderfully. 
Uh, or you do have a regular group, and because of the weather or other reasons or someone else is sick, your regular group cancels. Uh, if two or three players can't make it, this is especially true for like RPG campaigns where you expect everyone to be there every week or you're playing a legacy game. It's not necessarily as, as big an impact to a board game night, but it could be if you're playing through you know a Frosthaven campaign or something. If your regular group has to cancel the in-person event, you can try to shift it online in one way or another. Or if someone's, you know, really sick and they're bedridden or whatever, and they can't actually play, then you could play something else online. Uh, though, as we talked about before in maintaining a game group and forming a game group, you should try to get together in some way. So that is our pro tip here is if you do have a game night and it's a regular game night, one of the worst things that happen to a game night is if you cancel altogether, especially if it happens more than once, because then it's hard to get going again. As um, a start of our podcast episode tonight felt after we took some time off. Um, try to get a game together, right? If if only two out of six people can make it, maybe you go online and you play some codenames.game online and you play some codenames with each other. At least get together and play. Now, sometimes when you're canceling, it's because someone is traveling. <laughs> we, we were talking yeah. before about not being able to travel. Sometimes people can travel and have to travel. Sometimes they're out of town for work, for vacation, for whatever reason. Now, if you're out on vacation with your wife, I don't recommend this option. But if you're out at a convention for work or, you know, some work trip and you've got an evening to yourself that would normally be your board game night, why not keep it your board game night? Just join with your friends online. Keep that game night going like we were just talking about, even if you're out of town for some other mm -hmm. reason. But again, if you're out of town with your wife on vacation, don't say I'm going to go play board games with the with the, the with the rest of the uh, gang. That probably won't go over well. Though so I would I would say significant other. I think we're past the days where the dudes have to hide their gaming from their wives. Um, if someone moves away, like like sometimes people go out of town, but then they're out of town forever because they move to another place, or or your game group breaks up and everyone goes away to college and gets married, or they move away to Toronto for school. Or whatever that happens to be that your people you enjoy playing games with are no longer physically located in the same place. Um, in that case, remote gaming is perfect way to keep the group together. Now, we've seen this for years with RPG groups and even play by mail before that. But it's getting possible to do that with any type of gaming nowadays, including board games and card games. And there's so many ways to play games online without people having to be together at the table. So if someone's moved away, it's a great way to keep the group together. Now, similarly, if your group hasn't been together for a long time, maybe you've got your own current group, but there's an old group that, you know, you fondly reminisce that have all spread their wings and gone elsewhere. There's now ways to get that group back together, even if you're spread across the globe. So long as you can make the time zones work, the physical distance isn't the same problem it once was now that we have these online tools. Now, another one is just accessibility. It is a lot easier and you're going to have access to a lot more games by being able to play online than you are with your own personal board game collection. Not everyone runs a board game podcast and has collections with hundreds of games. It is like I don't have the latest copy of Ark Nova, but I can go online right now and Sean and me and D can play a game of Ark Nova through various different tools, which is a fantastic way Um to be able to afford a hobby that I've got to say is getting pricier and pricier and less accessible year after year. So online gaming can actually make it so that you can play games you never would have been able to play in the first place. Absolutely. Well, now that we've listed a few reasons you may want to play online, it's time 
to get some game recommendations for playing online. So the first one I'm going to recommend, I've already mentioned a couple times, just because it's such a perfect tool, is that someone in your group get a board game arena account. Now you can just go to board game arena and play for free. And that works well. But since Asmodee took it over, the, the paywall is becoming more present. It's becoming a more solid obstacle to be fair. The cost is so small. It's probably cheaper than buying pretty much any one board game for the year. So put aside your budget and go, I'm going to buy one last game so that I can subscribe to board game arena, because all you need is one person with a paid account to invite anyone with a free account to play that game, any game, sorry, not that game, any game plus paid accounts, get access to early betas and get to check out other stuff. You get, you know, fancy badges that show you're paid and all the usual stuff for paying a premium for an online service. Board game arena is fantastic. It's low cost, great implementations of games. They're legal. It's not someone who's hacked together something. It's actual licensed versions of the games. And honestly, one of my favorite things is it is easy to use. It is point and click in a browser. And now for the low, low price, and we're not selling them. We, are, we, are, we don't make any money for Phasmody. No, no, we are not affiliate. It really is a ridiculously low price of $48 Canadian a year. Yeah, one You game. get access to all the games. You and someone else can play from the same location. Your IP is not blocked and flagged as cheating so if you if you and your significant other both want to play from home you can do that with a pay with one of you having a paid account but also if you don't want to have to pay for zoom because we all know all those free zoom uh, things have gone away and we can't all you know borrow the 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 video from our uh, our work well for that 48 dollars, you get a online chat and video chat right built in to board game arena uh, right there for you, as well as scratch pads. Uh, these are all publisher authorized, often designer assisted implementations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a number of cases, the design, the, the digital designer has gone to the board game designer and discussed ways to make something better or improve things or make something more visible. So in some cases, the digital, uh, is, not better, but uh, improved yep. for its format compared to the real physical version. Honestly, I'm going to jump back to our reasons to play online and digital. Some games are better that way. Games with a lot of trackers and tokens and various scores to track and will actually play better digitally because you don't have all that fiddliness of managing things. Um, Deanna in the chat room has already called out Tapestry as one of those games. So I still, I prefer physical. I because there's a spatial aspect of that game, I still prefer physical. But honestly, there are board game arena adaptations that make the games more fun. But again, as Mo was saying, and specifically Arc Nova and Wingspan and other great modern current board games are yeah. available there. There are something like a thousand different games of Arc Nova going on right now <laughs> on board yeah. game arena. Um they are they are not just you know playing check and chess and checkers and and get yes. your your grandmother's games from twenty years ago. They have the new hotness on there, and there's a ton of games. Plus, they have the old stuff too. <laughs> like if you want to play, I, I don't know if they have Racco, but like you can play most traditional card games on there. There's a chess implementation. It's all there. All right, enough about BGA. Um, as movie would be great if there you know was a check <laughs> in the mail if you know. And give the code bellhop. Everyone gets 10% off for their membership. That'd be fantastic. But we don't have that. Um, next, though, is, is similar. It's digital versions of the games. And, and by this, what I mean 
is you buy a copy of a specific game. You're not going to a web page. It's not web based. You're you're just you're going out and you're going. I'm going to buy uh, Ticket to Ride or I'm going to buy Gloomhaven, but I'm going to buy the digital version. Now, this is generally going to cost you more than a BGA subscription, right? Forty bucks a month versus um, well, you can they no, kind of go on sale. Forty eight bucks a year, not a month. A year, forty eight dollars a year, Canadian. Yes, forty dollars a year versus. Um, I think Terraforming Mars is in that thing, but you don't get all the downloadable content. So the thing is, though, these tend to be more polished, more impressive, better sound, better better interface, and and well done, fully polished video game versions of board games. Now, personal favorites that I played that I think are extremely well implemented are Ticket to Ride, Small World Two, which is oddly named. It's there is no Small World Two board game, but Small World Two is Small World One. It just they launched a, a digital version and it wasn't great, and they totally revamped it and called it Small World Two. And um, I'm going to call it the Terraforming Mars one, though I will say I'd still rather play in person. Now I hear everyone rave about the digital version of Through the Ages as it being one of the best. And then there's also games that you can play um, that, that gives you a way to play these games. And I know our, our entire topic tonight is gaming with others remotely. But a lot of these also offer solo versions of games that may not have had solo versions on their own. Like I am currently playing through Space Hulk Tactics, which is a fantastic implementation of the original board game in digital format. So one of the things that you run into here is a lot of these don't have the same sort of interface. So you may still need a Zoom or a Discord or some other way to keep that social interaction, which is part of what this topic is about tonight. It's not just about playing the game, but playing the game with other people uh, and, and without some of that, uh, at least voice or digital or, or, or chat method, it really can feel like you're just playing against the computer AI. And that's not really the point of where we're going tonight. Yeah. It's about that interaction. Uh, for me, one of the top ones is Carcassonne. If you love Carcassonne, the digital versions of Carcassonne, uh, both on Steam and on uh, Xbox is another one I, I have, mm-hmm. are fantastic. And another thing about the cost, the one nice thing about these is they tend to go on sale pretty regularly or are offered with free subscriptions. So if you've got your Xbox mm-hmm. uh, live subscription or if you are uh, part, if you, if you check on the Epic Thursday mornings, you know, Epic's weekly free games, I've gotten Carcassonne in, in particular, but also uh, Blood Rage and uh, Game of Thrones, the board game. I've all been free. Mm-hmm. Uh, through various different services, as well as looking at things like Humble Bundle, where you can get uh, often, you know, entire bunches of Asmodee digital yep. games for one low price, uh, which is a fantastic option. Uh, now, one other thing that you can go, though, is sort of doesn't really fit into anywhere specific, and I, and I think here is kind of the best place for it, are the hybrid solutions, where they're part video game and part board game uh things like uh taburu infinity table uh or vorpal uh the vorpal um board systems where you're using some sort of physical board whether it's an an actual board game the the actual board game and a camera or a a digitally digital board game that that sort of interacts itself with online uh there are a few of these options out there but yet again you still need other camera and chat and video options available to make those work so just uh to back up just a little bit one of the problems that, that i didn't think of until you were talking about these digital versions of games that, that does kind of stink is in general you all have to have a copy of it 
I don't know many of those games like the Digital Gloomhaven. Everyone's got to have a copy of Digital Gloomhaven. Digital Terraforming Mars, everyone has to have a copy of Digital Terraforming Mars. I don't know if there's any, even even like Sean's calling out the Carcassonne on the Xbox, I don't think you can host games unless everyone owns the game. So that is a big drawback compared to, say, Board Game Arena. Now, the Teberu tables in that, and this is something I don't know because I haven't done the, the research. Is there a way to play someone else on them? So, like, if I had a Teberu and you had a Teberu, we'd have the physical game in front of us. But when I move a piece, it would show up on your board, too. So my understanding of the Teberu is that you only actually need one and someone else can, can sort of dial in, like showing my age there, remotely yeah. to the game. Uh, but that one is one that I'm still not 100% sure on. And it's got a bunch of different features. Like it's also, it's not just for remote play. It's also for enhanced, uh, in-person play. The board right. does extra things for you. Uh, mm-hmm. so whereas Vorpal board is in particular is specifically for one person has the game and someone else dials in and gets to see and partake okay. without, without having the physical, uh, game. I don't remember. I don't know the the brand they have, but uh, everybody's place, one of the local uh, gaming cafes, has a sit down. It looks like the old sit down Pac Man tables, and it's specifically to play board games on. And they paid for a bunch of licenses for different board games, but that's you just sit there and play, which is just you don't. It, basically, it's a storage solution, right? It's instead of having a thousand games, you have this one box that has a thousand games in it. Now, I don't. Again, I don't know if you can connect with someone else with one of those, so I don't know if it's a good recommendation for tonight's topic. Now, one other thing we've seen is publishers putting out web versions of their games. So it's kind of like a board game arena implementation, but it's owned and operated and controlled by the publisher. Um, the first big game I saw do this, and I'm, I'm sure companies have been doing this for years, but just didn't make a big splash, was Codenames, which right now, while you're watching the show, you can go play Codenames. You go to codenames.game, and you can just start playing Codenames. You can play solo. You can have your friends join. You get a little, you know the usual room code in the corner, and they can join on any device because it's web-based. Um, there's now Telestrations. The op released a Telestrations version, which is supposed to be fantastic. I haven't tried that one myself. Um, my kids are going to shout out Gardic Phone, which is a digital version of Telestrations. It's a, it's a version of Eat Poop You Cat. Um, and then I will admit, I, I don't know how strongly I want to recommend these because I don't know how legal they are. But you can find non-official versions of games like Dominion. I have played many games of Dominion in my browser. Um, you can play um, a game that's going to come up when we start talking about physical games. You can play Railroad Inc. online at multiple times, can't stop. Um, so, and then there's, I don't know, probably a million versions of Scrabble and, and Boggle out there if you want to play those online. Uh, the best thing here, though, is the fact that these are browser-based and free. So there's no app. There's nothing to download. No one needs anything special. Apple and Mac and people on, I could play on my fire TV with the internet browser on some of these games. Yeah. And now after that, we get to, uh, sort of the, the, the mixed bag options, uh, things like, uh, tabletopia, tabletop simulator, where there's good and bad. Uh, some of these yeah. have interact, uh, integrated chat systems of some form or other, but the interfaces are not always super polished. Um, something like tabletopia where it's a little more uniform is, uh, is its own thing, but then you move over to tabletop simulator and it's all a wild west. Uh, however it's been designed by whoever's designed it. That's what it looks like. There is no overarching sort of real concept other than the fact that there's a table that could be flipped at some point, which is kind of horrific concept. Uh, because it's not that hard to do. Uh, so this 
where you, this is somewhere you can find just about everything. If you want to play yeah. tic-tac-toe, if you want to play Warhammer 40k miniature battles, they're out there. Uh, a lot of them are unlicensed, but there are also a lot of real licensed systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big things you get into is the differences in whether it's coded or not. Some of them yeah, will do scripted. things for you, like a BG, like a board game arena implementation where you just, you know, click on the, the deck of cards and it deals them out to you. Whereas some of them are completely physical and you are playing it just as if you had the physical game in front of you, mm-hmm. but with a mouse, which I think many people can imagine isn't always the most easily managed system. Uh, your, your mouse doesn't quite work as nicely as your fingers and hands do, uh, for most people. Uh, although for some people, it could actually be an advantage. It could actually be better than whatever their, uh, normal mobility allows. So it's very much up to you. Uh, and it's very much sort of buyer beware, try it and see what you like, but don't set up a family game night on tabletop simulator without everyone being a little yes. familiar. That would be a serious shock. Now, what Tabletopia Tabletop Simulator do offer where you don't need a mouse is they are fully VR integrated. So if you want to do the super future cyberpunk thing and sit down at a virtual table and use your hands to manipulate a digital version of a board game, it can be done there. I don't know how well it works. I don't own that technology. I've never tried it. But for those of you with your Oculus Rifts or um, I'm pretty sure you can even get it on PlayStation with the PlayStation VR you could literally sit there and play Catan as if you were sitting at a table, including picking up and rolling the dice and all those things. Uh, the big thing I find, though, when I'm using these is, is there are usually multiple versions of games and you want to try to find the one that's the most scripted because that means it's going to do a lot of the work for you. Because like Sean said, otherwise, like there's when you say draw your hand, well, if it's not scripted, I have to like click draw five times to draw my hand of five cards. And then, you know, if it's scripted, it'll automatically put it in my hand. It'll sort the cards and group them as well as them moving my pawn on the time track next, because that's what you do after you draw, and then rolling the custom dice to figure out what resources we get to pick through before I get to do anything. Whereas the other version, you got to do that. I'm like, okay, I click five times. I'm not going to bother sorting my hand because it takes too long. Okay, did someone remember to move the mirror on tracker? Like, it's just like playing in person. It seems weird to complain about these things that we have no problem doing physically, but for some reason, once you put it digitally, it's really annoying. Now, as far as digital gaming goes, I do want to call out one other hybrid here. Um, I'm going to call it a hybrid. It's technically a video game series, and that is the Jackbox games, um, starting with the original trivia game, which I got to admit is a ton of fun. Moving on to the Jackbox party packs, which I think number 10 or 11 just recently came out. Now, these are not official digital versions of specific tabletop games, but most of the games in the Jackbox series are very much tabletop style games. They're word games and puzzle games and and your, there's dice games and all kinds of all kinds of different drawing games. They are based on the types of games we tend to play at the table. And I've got to say Jackbox Nights exploded um, during the COVID lockdowns. Like for almost every streamer I know set up a Jackbox party night. And they are so great for so many different people. Uh, There's just such a great variety of games and it's all super accessible. And like the web-based games, it just, they work on everything. You just need the room code to log in and you get to join the game. So you need your phone, you got a computer, you got a laptop, you got a Mac, you got, uh, you're running Linux. You can sit there and join in on a Jackbox game. So I strongly recommend those. Um, that's one of those things. If we had more time, I'd probably host a Jackbox night every whatever Thursday night at 6 p.m. or something. 
I would love to do that. Just there's not enough time in the day. Now, while Jackbox games are fantastic, they are a little bit of a socially distanced thing. They don't have any form of chat or interaction between the players other than within the uh, mechanics of the game. Uh, yeah. So having a Discord chat room or Zoom window or yeah. something else out there is definitely advisable. Uh, I used to do a Friday night Jackbox game with uh, one of the Discord servers I was on. And it was great because everyone just hopped into a Discord room and then joined the, and then joined from the room code there. Uh, additionally, depending on how many you, how many people there are, you want to sort of, uh, learn the Jackbox games because certain games play unlimited people. Certain mm -hmm. games have player counts. Some, some drag on with too many players. And again, as most said, there's like 10 different party packs now. There's a lot of games to know. Uh, and so do your research and figure out which games are going to work best for your situation, your number of players and, and such, uh, because there is a wide range of options available. All right. While these digital games are great, that's not always what people want, right? Well, they can be great, fantastic, sometimes even better than the physical implementations. Sometimes you want that tactile feel um, for many of us, dice in particular. If a game has dice, I want to touch and roll those dice. Um, and you want that chatter and banter that you don't always get with sites like Board Game Arena. Like, yes, it has chat. Yes, it has video. But like like Sean just said, the Jackbox doesn't. You need to use some kind of outside source to get that social feeling going on at time. And now I think, like, I, I can't read their mind, but I'm assuming Brian, based on how the question was worded, is looking for tabletop games that play, play great at the table, but work remotely. Um, the main tool we're going to be looking at here is something like Discord or Zoom, something where you have video and audio, as well as a physical game board. So, and what was it? I can't remember the other one we used to always use that, that was really good until we switched to Zoom. What was that? Oh, um, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, see, drawing a blank. We, we <laughs> had that Tubi or something, but that's the TV thing. I don't even remember what it was called. It's what we used to record the show on. But anyway, what, I, I, what do they call them nowadays? I don't even know. Are they digital conference rooms? Like, I don't I even mean, know what you call that just calls it, I mean, Zooming, Zooming has sort of become the Kleenex. Yeah, Zoom's kind of <laughs> become the Kleenex, right? That's where the name of the episode comes from, right? Because Zoom's kind of the Kleenex of uh, digital chat room or video and audio chat room. Yeah, for, for better or worse, they became the de facto standard at the beginning of the pandemic and then ran into problems and, and, you know, and angered some people and kind of have fallen out of favor uh, in the post pandemic yes. world. But now yeah, they, we guess it's possible to really play anything over zoom. We've seen some pretty impressive camera rigs and setups showing off how people have completed an entire Gloomhaven campaign with remote three remote players. Uh, but that's not what we're going to showcase tonight. We're going with games that are easy to play over Zoom, uh, either out of the box or with very minor modifications. Yeah, here we're, we're not looking like, yes, I'm, I'm sure someone has figured out a good way to play Power Grid over Zoom. Um, and I'm sure someone else has, has set up whatever. I, I can't even think off the top of my head. Games that wouldn't work very well over Zoom. I'm sure it can be done. But what we're looking at is games that basically play the same at the table as they do over Zoom. Right. And now, as usual, this list is in no particular order. All right. The other thing we're going to do tonight is I'm going to kind of more stick to genres. Like we're going to call it some specific games, 
But in, in there, there's whole classifications of games that just work well from this. And I'm going to start. I think we both agree one of the best kinds of tabletop games to play online uh, over Zoom through a chat room with with a chat um, and possibly stream it is a a role playing game, a a pen and paper role playing game. Um, you may even go to so far as to use a virtual tabletop. People have been playing role playing games online for years, going back to the first times. We were able to connect digitally. I don't know how many people know this fact, but I met Deanna in a on a BBS called Spine of the World in the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay door that I was running where I was going to run the Enemy Within campaign through a BBS through text. Um, I, I, I had to adore her because she's the only one that actually showed up to play. So that's actually how I met Deanna. Back in the day, she was on a C64 and I was on my dad's Amiga. So people have been playing RPGs online for years. And one of the good things about that is over all those years of playing online, they have kind of perfected it. Like the, the, the RPGs work really well online. And I actually now know a number of people who had physical groups who now play online because they like the tools that are available and the fact they don't have to travel they don't have to put on pants, right? Like uh, there, there are some advantages to playing digitally um, that the, the you don't get having to play in person. Yeah. And there are so many tools now, and we've done whole shows about some of the digital mapping solutions and other uh, things that are out there, digital ma maps and, and tokens, music, uh, sound effects, uh, think spaces like Roll20, or even just a simple Discord room work fantastic for uh for things you know with discord there are so many bots out there if you want to play mm -hmm. a specific game that has specific dice requirements there is a discord bot out there for you <laughs> i have run into some really obscure ones that it'll do all sorts of fancy dice pools and and you know extra rolls when you know when you when you max out and you, you roll extra dice it does it all for you <laughs> all there so if you want to just have a chat room maybe a little bit of voice or video chat as well discord has all of that right there for rpg or if you want to go to that next level and you want to go to uh you know having a virtual tabletop where you can move miniatures around and, and have mm -hmm. maps uh then you've got so many options out there with roll 20 uh or any of the the other similar options that whose names i really should have written down and didn't <laughs> Now, as for what game to play, I honestly, that's going to be based on your group more than anything. I, I, your, your best path to play the game you want to play, right? Um, what you do have to watch for, though, is what requirements are in that game um, physically, right? So games that require tokens uh, that the people pass out, you're going to need some way to represent that. That may not like I'm not saying it's a bad choice digitally, but be aware that you're going to need some way to track your bennies. If you're playing Savage Worlds, if you're playing a game that uses maps and minis, you're probably going to want to invest in one of the better virtual tabletops, something where you can track your maps and minis. And trust me, you're going to want one that does fog of war and does the calculations and line of sight for everything. It's just going to make it easier for you. Now, if you don't have that rule restriction, like that you're not using minis, then you might just need basic chat, right? Like a, a, a Zoom meeting or whatever to be able to play. Now, you're probably going to want some kind of online dice roller, depending on how much you trust your players. And um, personally, I find the rule light game that works the best for me so far that I've seen is powered by the Apocalypse games. 
just because it's 2d6 everyone's got 2d6 the basic system you're rolling higher than seven everyone kind of gets it doesn't require maps and minis and tokens and all that special stuff though of course various pbta games might like personally if i was going to run a campaign online right now i would probably go with worldwide wrestling from nathan paoletta so there are a ton of options out there from uh, Albert Rodeo, uh, Table Plop, and other free options out to other paid ones, which are either online or you can even host yourself. Uh, I know yep. our uh, friend of the show, Sean, from, uh, um, wow, they, they haven't been off the air for that long. <laughs> Gaming and BS. Gaming and BS. Uh, went through, did a few episodes of how to set up his own personal online uh, tabletop that he purchased cool. uh, that had licenses available to it. Now, what you're going to do, again, depends on that. If you want to roll, if you want to play D&D, you're probably going to want Roll20. Although, you know, there are, you know, things like Albert Rodeo, which while free, still have a significant amount of functionality, but may not have all of the officially licensed rule books and things which you mm. can get from something like Roll20. Now, if you are looking for something simpler, like a PBTA game, I while I am a backer of this, I did put money into it, uh, playroll.com is kind of risen up as one of the premier PBTA or Forged in the Dark role-playing virtual tabletops, and they have all of the licenses for all, a lot of those major games out there, like... Uh, um, masks and, and all of the, uh, you know, associated games from, from those publishers again, as licensed games with the rule books, with the rule sets, with pre-made character sheets, all set and ready to go in there. You don't have to worry about designing your own custom character sheets. All right. Moving away from RPGs. That's the only RPGs we're going to call out tonight instead of specific ones. We are going to go to the first board game on our list, a party game. One we are going to review later tonight. So those of you here live, you'll get to hear that later and listen to the podcast. Uh, for those of you who are catching just this segment on YouTube, be sure to find the reviewer in the full episode. Monstrosity is the game. And the reason I call this one out is I watched a live stream of I don't know how many people it was. I'm going to it was at least 30 people, maybe 50 people play a game of this all at once. Um, the person that owns the game does all the monster describing. And everyone else draws on whatever they have on hand. Um, someone was using MS Paint. Someone used a tablet. Someone grabbed pen and paper. Um, you're all going to draw. You're going to hold it up. Everyone's going to laugh. No, you're not doing the full game. No, you're not doing the full scoring. But you are getting the essence of that game out there, which is one person describing a monster and everyone else trying to draw it based on that. Now, the benefit here is if more than one person owns the game, they can take turns describing monsters. Um, or I guess the person who owns it could always hold a monster card up to the camera and everyone else closes their eyes or something like that. That gets a bit messy. And another recommendation I saw online was the person who's going to describe the monster just like goes and finds a picture of a monster. You know, they Google monster with 60 eyes and whatever comes up, that's what they describe. That way you don't even need the physical copy of the game there. I think Monstrosity is a great game to play online. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the gr other great ones is Codenames. Someone lays out the cards, points a camera at the setup, and you're good to go. The only tricky part is, of course, the clue card that the team leaders use. Now, here you probably need some trust as someone holds up the card to the camera and both leaders you take a pic or a screenshot. Another option, of course, is to go to Codenames Online and use the clue cards there, but don't actually play there. Uh, you can still play physically. 
Uh, another option, of course, is using a side channel like a messaging app or something directly between the two people who need to to share those, that information and, uh, and and share it there so that everyone on cam can't see it. But uh, yeah, you can you can do it with a camera and it's almost exactly the same as playing it on yeah. the web version. Yeah, Discord, just make a separate channel, right? Like the team leaders and people leave the two people who are the leaders for the next round. Join that room. Everyone make sure everyone else is out. You can see who's in the room. Uh, now I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat again by going back to a group of games, uh, type of games, and that is de- deck construction games, deck construction dueling card games. And by decks construction, I mean you build your deck before you sit down and play. Uh, games like Magic: The Gathering that'd probably be the big one to call out. Now I, this is not deck builders. You're not Star Realms doesn't work so well. The whole central market thing doesn't work when people are in different locations. Um, but games where people make their deck ahead of time and then just play with their own cards during the game. Um, there's, of course, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, and, of course, now Disney Lorcana that fits in this. Um, actually, a ton more games fit in this. Most of the collectible card games and trading card games, living card games, all work for this. Now, of course, everyone has to have their own deck, but you don't need to. Uh, you can play digitally as long as you don't have to share cards. So you just have to watch anything that has players take cards from opponents. I realize that's something that's pretty, I think it's pretty much out of magic now, but I know some card games are like, you know, take this card, put it on top of your opponent's deck. Those aren't going to work so well, unless your opponent happens to have copies of the cards as well. Um, Again, magic's probably the main recommendation here. It's still good after all these years. Um, Yes, you could go to Magic the Gathering Arena and play that way. But again, I think you want that Zoom, you want that Discord, you want that communication. You want to be able to look your opponents in the eyes when you play that 10-10 trample. Fair enough. Well, Another uh, sort of genre of games are Trivial Pursuit style games. Now, if everyone happens to have a copy of Trivial Pursuit, which isn't all that unlikely, you can just sit down and one person has the board and everyone has their own sets of cards. The odds that you're actually going to ask to pull the same cards from two sets of Trivial Pursuit, assuming you even all have the same versions, are slim and none. But there are also other versions. And what that's where we get to outsmarted game that we have reviewed here on the show. And this one is Trivial Pursuit designed for to allow for remote play. Yes. Now, even when playing at the same table, it's best if everyone pulls out their phone and plays <laughs> that way. Uh, now, the game does provide a virtual board. So anyone from anywhere in the world who's playing and logged in on that game can move their own piece. But we found some difficulties with that. So it's still better if you look at the camera at the big board set up at the main, whoever's, you know, got the actual physical board and say, Hey, can you move me onto that blue square off to the left? Because trying to move on the digital board was somewhat problematic. Now I got to say, I think a really fun variant of this would be for everyone to bring a different version of trivial pursuit to the table. <laughs> so one person answer asking questions is going to be different than another player asking questions. Uh, next, another group of games, Roland rights. I'm going to call out specifically Dice Kingdoms of Valeria as one of our personal favorites. Um, for most rolling rights, all the players really need is to print off a copy of the, the board, the, the writing part. And 90% of the rolling rights out there, you can get free PDFs. Um, Dice Kingdoms is one of those. Actually, the PDFs are more readable than the actual ones that come in the game, as we called out in our uh, Dice Kingdoms of Valeria review. Now, yes, it'd be better if everyone has their own set of D6 dice and even better if they're the proper colors. But you can just have one person roll the dice for everyone and point the camera at the dice. Uh, the only fiddly bar- bit with this particular game, Dice Kingdoms of Valeria, is the fact you can claim these statues. There's a market of five of them. 
So you're going to want a camera set up on them or at least a picture of them. And people are going to have to find some way to track which ones they've claimed. That could be another picture or screenshot, right? People have to realize, just take a screenshot and then you've got, here's the ones that are up in the market right now. Of course, there are plenty of other roll and writes, ones that probably work perfect out of the box. I know the um, the pinball secret super skill pinball arcade is a very popular one for people to stream and play along with their audience. So that's another one that would work really well. And of course, there's the basics, right? The There's the Yahtzee works great playing online. Everyone has their own set of dice or again, one person rolls and then everyone actually play a game of Yahtzee where one person rolls and you all have to use the same numbers. That's a great Yahtzee variant. That's a little more of a gamer's game. Um, another one that gets a huge shout out by people all the time is the welcome to series basically any of those roller rights that say one to a hundred players work perfect online now while still technically a roll and write we're going to call out railroad inc and all those other single input multiple output games these are the games where everyone is given the same thing at the start of the round and has to do something with it uh with railroad inc it's the results of a dice roll uh, that they have to draw, but there's also a uh, number nine, MM, NMBR nine, which has all the players stacking the same tile or tiny town where everyone has to take the same cube. Now, the issue here is for this to work, everyone kind of needs a copy of the game. Maybe, maybe not with Railroad Inc., but it is an issue with the other ones. Now, one of these games we reviewed pretty recently was Dulce, which would also work again, but you'd be, everyone would need a copy. Next, I'm going to call out the Coded Chronicle series of games from uh, our friends, the Bamboozle Brothers and the Op. Um, I, my biggest recommendation is still the Scooby-Doo Escape from the Haunted Mansion for anyone who's old enough to remember Scooby-Doo and anyone who's young enough to enjoy Scooby-Doo. But if you're not a big Scooby fan, the Goonies Escape with One-Eyed Willie's Rich Stuff is a close second. Um, I've actually seen people play Scooby live on stream and it worked fantastically. Now, the person who owns the game is going to need a copy of it. Like you have to have one person as a game and they're going to end up doing a lot of reading because people are going to say, oh, go check that out. But joining in on Zoom or other other virtual chats or, or talking online, you can have multiple people work on the puzzles. Um, You can even have it so that, you know, someone plays Shaggy and decides what Shaggy's going to do. Even better if you have multiple copies, or if you can get together physically before playing online, you can hand out the books. Can you imagine, like, meet up at Tim Hortons for a, a coffee, sit down, have a coffee, and hand out the seven different Goonies books to seven different people, then that night you go home and you play online. I think that'd be a fantastic way to play these games. Now I'm going to expand this, though, to say really most of the escape room-style games would work for this well playing online. Um, I think in particular the murder mystery style games being better than the 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 escape room style games because most of the escape room style games tend to have you have to manipulate physical components. Well, you can't really do that very well. One person can, but it's not all that interesting for the other players. I'm going to call out specifically Mysterious Package Company's Ghost in the Machine. I've been tempted to live stream that because we're currently playing through that and it plays like a which way book. It's if you go to room number 108, you open up a book and read 108. I think that one's a great one to have people vote where to go next, right? You put up some kind of voting thing, people put their hands up or whatever. Um, I've also heard and seen people stream Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Um, patron of the show, friend of ours, Jeff, is huge on these games. And I've seen other people run that game on Zoom. All right. Well, now on to some honorable mentions. Uh, first up, just one. 
Now, this seems like a great party game for playing over video chat. Everyone writes down their own thing and then reveals it as normal. The only fiddly bit is getting out the clue word uh, to, ev- uh, to everyone. But that's as simple as one player around having to close their eyes or look away. The only reason this is an honorable mention is that none of us have actually gotten to play this great sounding game yet. And there's probably a ton of other social, or not social deductions, sorry, that's next. Uh, spoiler, there's probably a ton of other party games that work well for this. I was looking at my own personal collection of party games, and, and I didn't see a lot that would work. Now, Telestrations is another one, but again, you kind of want everyone to have their own copy of the game. But you can put, but like you can't, sorry, Telestrations doesn't work because you can't pass your books, right? So I'm looking at mine, and I'm like, some people have recommended Trap Words and some other party games, um, but just one in particular seems like a perfect one. Next, though, I do want to call out what I kind of slipped there is uh, social deduction games. Well, we may not love them. Lots of people do. Social deduction games are great for online play. Almost anytime, if you search games to play over Zoom, one of the games you're going to see everywhere is some version of Werewolf or Mafia or or The Resistance or the, all of those games with the hidden trader. Try to figure out who the killer is. Um, the, all of those games are hugely popular. The difficulty is, though, is giving people their roles. And this is the reason I didn't put Psychobabble on the main list. I'm like, Psychobabble is fantastic. This would play great over Zoom. But how do I do the card thing to figure out who's insane? I couldn't think of a way to do it It physically at all. You would need There needs to be like a tabletop topia version just to shuffle those cards and give them out to people. So do watch for that if there's the, you know, handing out of roles. With everyone recommending Werewolf, I'm sure there has to be an online tool that people are recommending. Because I don't quite see how to do it. But anyway, I'm not a huge fan of these types of games. I do like Psychobabble. Um, secret horrible villain games, if you know what I mean, are also very popular for online play. All right. Well, there you have a list of ways to play games remotely online, including a number of ways to play digitally, as well as some physical games that work well over video chat. Have you been gaming online? What games have you been playing? And what would you recommend Brian check out? Let us know in the comments. Or even better yet, join our Discord at discord.tabletopbellhop.com and share your thoughts there. And maybe why don't we set up a game? Welcome to our review of Monstrosity from Friendly Skeleton. Monstrosity comes from designer Eric Slauson and features artwork from a variety of different artists that I'm not all going to list here. It was originally released in 2020 and the vision we own was published by Deepwater Games, who have since changed their name to Friendly Skeleton. No, the version of Monstrosity we're talking about tonight is the original version. There was a second edition, which was released in 2022, as well as Monstrosity Top Secret, which was originally a Target exclusive. The basic gameplay is the same in all versions of the game, and what we say here will apply to all of them. But each version does feature different monster cards. Now, there's also several expansions and a number of promos each of which just gives you more monster cards with even more decks coming. This party game plays three-day players at least, according to the box. Though we've seen online games with many more people playing. Each round of the game only lasts three to five minutes total, with the full game length varying based on the player count and how long you want to play. As for what age this game is for, the box says eight, and the BGG community says six. While we would say the gameplay is simple enough for the younger kids, the artwork may be scary or gory for some kids. Now, Monstrosity is a monster drawing game, as you can probably guess from the name. One player is the witness who saw a monster. That's represented by a card. They get to look at that card for a bit, but then they have to put it away and describe what they saw to the other players 
who are sketch artists. Artists have two minutes to draw and ask the witness questions, and then everyone's drawing is revealed. You vote to determine whose drawing best matches the original card. So for a look at a sample monster card and the other components you get in this drawing party game, we invite you to take a look at our Monstrosity unboxing video on YouTube. Now, I make sure to only show off one monster there because I don't want to spoil the fun. One of the reasons there are so many different versions and expansions and promos for this game is that it really does work best if none of the players have any familiarity with the monsters they may see. Now, what you will see here is the very clear rulebook, a dry erase score tracker, all of which clean up very easily, as well as dry erase boards for the players, the markers and the box, which does a good job of storing everything. There's even extra room for additional cards, which we like to use to split up what cards we have and haven't used in games ourselves yet. Oh, and you get a sticker. Now, the component quality here is honestly really good for a party game. Card quality is excellent. The card art is fantastic, though can get a bit creepy at times. More about that in a bit. One thing you don't get, though, is any form of timer. No sand timer here. You're going to need something to keep track of both the time the witness has to look at the card as well as the drawing time. We gave a brief summary already. But I think it's worth giving a more detailed overview of play. Note this is not meant to be a teach. Please refer to the rule book in the game or someone who does teach videos to uh, learn properly how to play the game. Though we're pretty much going to cover everything. I just don't want to be called out for messing up a rule. So you start a game of monstrosity by choosing who's going to be the first witness. They're going to take the deck of monster cards and everyone else is going to grab a dry erase board and a marker. The witness draws a monster card from the deck and has 20 seconds to look at it to try and memorize as many features as they can. After this time limit, a new timer is set, this time for two minutes, and the witness describes the monster they saw. Note this has to be completely verbal. The witness is not allowed to include any hand gestures or anything like that. Now, the other players are the sketch artists. They're going to do their best to draw what the witness is describing. Now, during this period, they're also free to ask the witness any questions they want to help them with their drawings. Now, while this is happening, be aware that no one should be able to see what anyone else is drawing. And the witness can't refer back to their card while describing what they saw. It's got to be all from memory. After the two-minute timer, the artists all reveal their drawing. The witness notes down who they think both best matched the their memory of the card without checking the card it has to be from their memory then the monster card is revealed and the artists now vote for who they think best drew the monster on the card the player or players if you tie get them they have the most votes each get a point the witness then reveals their pick if they pick the same artist one as the artists voted for they're considered a credible witness and they get one point if they picked someone else, that player gets the point instead. You then pass the deck of cards to the next player, they become the next witness, and you keep going around. Now, according to the rulebook, you're supposed to let every player play the witness twice. That's the official full game rules. In practice, though, we found some groups are happy going around the table once, other groups just keep playing round after round after round. Now, the rulebook also includes one variant where the witness doesn't just start describing the monster. The artists have to ask the witness questions, and the witness can only answer based on the questions asked. When using this variant, you get three minutes to draw and question instead of two. Now, I think I first heard about this game during a Gen Con Spring Showcase. Uh, this was in the middle of the COVID lockdowns. And as soon as I heard the game play described, as soon as I heard what this game was about, I had to have it. And then I watched an actual play with 30 or so players 
drawing what the streamer witness was describing and commenting. Um, it just cemented in my head how much I think this would be a great game to play with my family. Both my kids are aspiring artists. My one daughter wants to grow up to be a children's book illustrator. The other one just draw the drawing. I knew they were going to love it. And I also thought this would be fantastic for public play events. Yeah, it was pretty clear that this game was going to be a winner with the party game crowd when I heard about it. But it remained to be seen what the artistic style was and how much artistic style mattered to players. Turns out, both more wide-ranging than expected and not that much in that order. Now, one of the things I love about this game is the simplicity. It is super approachable. You can describe the core concept in seconds, and from that base description, anyone you just give that pitch to is going to know right away, are they in or out? It's that simple. One player describes a monster, everyone else has to draw it, then you get points based on how close you were to the original. That's it. That's the entire concept of this game. Such a great concept, and it plays out pretty much exactly as you'd expect it to. Yeah, the real magic behind this game is the art itself. It needs to be complex enough to challenge the witness, but still have readily describable features. Now, something I found fascinating is how much uh, the game evolves as you play. The, the, the experience changes the more you play the game. How much experience actually affects both being the witness and the person drawing, um, especially being the person drawing what questions you will ask the witness. Because your first game of Monstrosity, as a witness, you don't really know what you should focus on. You've got this card and there's all there's this creepy, cute, whatever thing there. And you're like, man, I don't know what to do. What, what, what's the important part? What do I have to memorize? And you try to memorize it all. Well, as you play more rounds, you quickly learn that some things are more important than others. For example, I've almost every time someone plays for the first time, someone is going to mention a color on the monster. Well, everyone just has black dry erase markers on white whiteboards. So color doesn't matter at all. And usually it's a couple of rounds before people realize how important things are. Like, which way is the monster facing? Is it looking to the back? Is it looking to the front? So details are easy to remember. Like, oh, it had three arms. But what position were those arms in? And then the fact you can describe things like six eyes. Everyone's going to catch that. But not everyone's going to catch, oh, it was crouched over facing to its right with its back arched upwards towards the sky. And it's long. So it's more of a, a lengthwise thing. It's a, you probably you want to draw it landscape instead of portrait of course the longer you play uh the more detailed your descriptions get and the more artistry matters to the other players as well first-time players may be happy to reward someone who has gotten the feel of the monster without getting that detail right whereas yep. the more you play you're going to be looking for that closer accuracy often um an experience with the game is also one of the drawbacks, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, to have the most fun with this game, you should be using a brand new, never before seen monster from anyone playing that round. You never want to have a round when someone's like, oh, I remember that monster. Or you don't want the witness to sit down with the players and go, yeah, remember that one that looks like a starfish? It's that one. That would completely ruin the fun of this game. Now, it is very easy to keep track if it's just you and your group or your family and you use the box. The box even has a divider to separate your cards. So you just sit there and go, yep, there's the stack of cards we played. Here's the stack of cards we haven't touched yet. The problem is if you're someone like me whose copies of games um, get played by multiple people or you bring them out to public play events or even more so, uh, my kids have taken this game to school. So they played it with different groups that I've never even played. So it's a little hard for us to keep track and find a card that no one in the family's used. Now, there are tons of expansions to help with this problem. So if you do have that mix up and you're like, man, I don't even know what we've seen or something, just grab a new pack. And to be fair, if a repeat does come up, if it's just one or two players, it's not going to ruin the round. And honestly, the way different witnesses describe the cards, you could have five different people describe the fame monster completely different. So it doesn't ruin it. It's just better if every monster is fresh. 
If you are someone who runs public play events, it might even be worth buying an expansion for only at home play yeah. and leaving the uh, the main deck of the uh, game for playing with uh, various people out at events. Oh, I totally agree. That makes perfect sense. Now, one problem that did come up when introducing this game to new players is that some of the artwork is a little creepy. And um, there are some insect-like creatures and some various uh, arachnid-looking things. Uh, and some of the creatures just look downright vicious with, like, blades dripping with ichor. Now, I'm sure for most people, this isn't going to be a problem. The game is called Monstrosity. You expect monsters. But I will say it was a little more striking than I expected. And you might want to check with the group you're playing with for any particular phobias. Um, the first time we played with my youngest daughter, she ended up having nightmares after our first play based on the card art. Now, since then, she hasn't found another card. There was one particular card that she still doesn't ever want to see again. So this is one of the reasons I personally went out and picked up the Cute Creatures expansion, because it specifically avoids that. There's another Robots expansion that is also good for that. So you just need to check with your group. As you can see in the uh, the, the box image down there, uh, the, the art on the box makes it feel a, a little bit more cute than some of the monsters may appear to be. Uh, it is an impressive range of art that they have put together here, mm -hmm. and it might be worthwhile having someone who maybe who's someone who's not interested in playing filter the cards. If you do have people with concerns just to avoid any surprises, the last thing you need anyone needs is to have their day ruined by a game. Yeah, all I would do is do do kind of like your normal RPG check-in at the start of the game and say, is there anything that you don't want to see? And then just make sure everyone's aware and when they're the witness, if they happen to draw a card that features whatever crocodile-like things or things with more than two eyes, you throw it at the back of the deck for some other play. Now, in general, Monstrosity was the hit I expected it to be. Yeah, my kids got a little creeped out by some of the pictures, and, and I can see how some people aren't going to like it. But overall, my kids adore this game. They love it. My gaming group loves this game. It's been a huge hit at our local game nights. And like I said, my kids have even brought this one to school. Even people who generally don't like drawing games have loved playing this one. And I think part of that is even if you're not a great artist, the main thing is getting the gist across. Uh, the pose or motion or the arms in the right place is way, often way more important in the, the, you know, the hair follicles being in the exact right spot. And sometimes that's going to work more than than not perfectly matching the details on the cards. I think in my experience playing this game, uh, in their first game, actual artists, people with artistic skill, haven't done as well because yeah. they like to put the detail in. They like to get and, – and oftentimes they won't be able to finish or they'll focus too much on a detail that no one else has cared about, which, which gives it to the other players because overall the art – Re seems to resemble it, uh, even if the quality of the drawing is more stick finger than not for uh, for other people. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, though, as they develop and they learn what is important and what isn't in the drawings and get to experience more of the monsters, it does improve and their skill and their their use of time gets a lot better. Yeah, the other thing I've noticed with, with artists is they, they spend a lot of time on the detail. Well, if the detail's wrong, it's, it's very hard to score well. Whereas if you just drew like the abstract shape and kind of it, it's going to be close to the monster than this highly detailed creature that looks nothing like the card. Now, the one place that, that shocked me the most where monstrosity has been the biggest hit locally, like I was totally surprised by this, is with the local Dungeons and Dragons community. 
uh, especially the dungeon masters in that group. Um, we've had a couple different D&D groups come out to our public play events and they're the, after their game or before their game, they're looking for board games to play. And this is the one I would recommend to them. And I guess this makes perfect sense when you think about it, because one of the jobs of being a dungeon master in D&D or a fan a GM in a fantasy game or anything else is describing the monsters. Like one local DM specifically noted, this game is a fantastic way to practice and refine those monster description skills. And after playing Monstrosity, they found their game got better the next time, you know, the heroes ran across so the great Grell. They were able to describe the Grell in much more um, striking fashion. This honestly, in my opinion, is one of those games that could just be perfect for winning your RPG only friends to play more diversify and play other types of games, play, play on a night. And it's perfect for your RPG group when someone can't make it and you don't want to continue your campaign. Or here's a great board game to suggest. It isn't something you're going to get too involved in and possibly distract the group. Well, it's not going to win over people who can't stand drawing games at all. I think your average group of players is going to have fun with this game regardless of their hobby gaming experience. This is actually a fantastic game for hobby gamers to bring out when hanging with non-gamers or extended family. There you have our thoughts on the monster drawing party game, Monstrosity. There are quite a few popular drawing games out there now. We've come a long way from win, lose, or draw. What's your favorite drawing game? Let us know in the comments below. If you enjoyed this review, how about you treat us to a coffee over at coffeeko-fi.com slash tabletop bellhop. One word. Welcome to our review of Seas of Havoc, specifically the Sea Monster Edition from Rock Manor Games, who we have to thank for sending us a review copy of this pirate-themed naval battle. Seas of Havoc comes from the duo of Sebastian Bernier Wong and Peter Gorniak, and it features artwork from Nebetsi Zitro. It was published just this year by Rock Manor Games after a very successful Kickstarter. Now, there were three games, three versions of the game that were published. Uh, there's a retail version, the Sea Monster Edition, and the Captain's Deluxe Edition. It's the Sea Monster Edition that we were sent, and that's what we'll be highlighting in this review. While there were a few copies of Seas of Havoc that showed up at local game stores and a few online shops, it looks like the only place to get the one now is direct from Rock Manor. Even there, they are sold out of the retail version, but as of right now, you can get the Sea Monster Edition on sale for under $100 Canadian. So Seas of Habrick is an abstract naval battle game that plays anywhere from one to five players, either individually, in teams, with rules for up to three AI opponents. Game length is very player and player count dependent, but it doesn't tend to go over an hour and a half once everyone's at least learned the game and played at least once. The suggested age here is 13 plus, which seems to be more component based than anything else. We can both see younger players enjoying this one, though the game does have some weight to it, and there's quite a bit going on. So pick a captain and a ship and head out into the Seas of Havoc, a mystical sea with unusual properties. Start each round by sending skiffs to the various islands to collect resources, upgrade your ship, and improve your deck. Then move on to the sea phase and battle the other captains through programmed movement-style card play. The winner will be the pirate with most infamy at the end of the game. For a look at the components in this pirate-themed naval battle game, check out our Seas of Havoc unboxing video on YouTube. Now remember, we have the Sea Monster Edition, which has everything in the retail edition, but also two new captains and three sets of sea monsters that can be added to your game. 
Now in the video, you'll see that the component quality here is really good. I love the small plastic cannonballs and the fact they're not actually round, so they don't roll away, though do note they do bounce. Uh, the card quality is good. The rule book is very clear. Iconography on the cards and boards is excellent. Um, the only complaint I have is that whoever designed the box insert obviously never had a full set of components in front of them because they didn't account for the fact there's a plastic grommet that holds the player boards together. And because of that, they don't actually fit into the insert. They also did the thing where they give you an insert that's clearly designed to hold specific things in specific places, but don't actually tell you what goes where. Yeah, sadly, they might have been better off giving you an empty box with baggies. But with that, let us move on to an overview of play. Note, this isn't in any way meant to be a rules teach. This is just to give you an idea of the game, whether it may be for your group or not. There's going to be a lot going on here in Seas of Havoc. It's a mashup of worker placement, deck building, program movement, and naval battle. So the game starts with each player choosing a captain and a ship. There are six of each of these to choose from in the core game, leaving lots of possible combinations. Note, despite the fact there are six ships and six captains, the player count does stop at five. Each captain gives the player an asymmetric in-game bonus, and each ship has its own unique starting set of cards, as well as two unique upgrade cards. So once this choice is made, the players will take the player board and pieces in the appropriate color based on the ship. They then slot their captain into their board and make up their starting deck by adding the two captain-specific cards to the uh, ship-specific cards. The two ship upgrade cards are placed face down next to your board. Everyone takes one of each of the resources of sail, coin, and cannonball. The board is then set up, which involves rolling coordinate dice and placing rocks, gusts, and whirlpools, as well as two sunken treasure tokens. Our deck is shuffled, and an initial market of five cards is placed next to the board. Start player is determined, and players place their ships using the dice, and then deciding which way they want to face. At this point, some players will get bonus resources based on the player order. Then you're ready to start. Now, each round of Sea of Havoc starts with the island phase. Here, players use their three skiffs, to visit the islands on the outside of the board. Each island gives a different benefit. The amount of skiffs, skiffs that can be placed on each island is based on your player count. Most of the islands give resources in the form of sails or coins or cannonballs. Some islands let you take resources of your choice, including one that also gives the start player the uh, compass rose to that player. There's even one island that lets you trade up two resources for any two other. Now, there's also an island that lets you scrap cards from your deck. Now, note in this game, anytime you scrap a card, you get the resources shown on that card. This includes your starting deck cards. Another island lets you upgrade your ship. You discard the resources shown on one of those ship upgrade cards and place it face up. That card now has, excuse me, that card now has a special effect for the rest of the game and is worth infamy at the end of the game. Now, when going to the market island, instead of placing your skiff on the island, you actually place it on the card you wish to purchase. Cards aren't purchased until the end of the round, so you can place your skiff on a card that you can't even afford. Also, before placing your skiff, you can wipe the market, replacing any cards currently not marked by a player from previous rounds and replacing them. Now, during this phase, you can also claim for one, to one of the four flag tokens. Um, there are four of these that each gives you an immediate in-game bonus. You claim a flag, you get to do it. Now, if you choose a flag that's already owned by another player, you, instead of taking it from the board, steal it from them. Now, in addition to this, once you have these flags, when you get to the C phase, if you play a card that has a flag symbol on it that matches a card you own or a flag you own, 
you then get that bonus again. So kind of think of the Star Realm faction bonus thing, but instead with physical flag. Now, once everyone has placed all three of their skiffs, players then have the option to buy the cards that their skiffs are on in the market. This is optional. You could have just placed your skiff there to stop someone else from buying it or changed your mind or whatever. Unlike many deck building games, the card goes directly into your hand rather than onto your discord pile. So you can use it in that in this next phase. And that next phase is the C phase. Here, players are going to take turns playing cards from their hand and moving and firing with their ships, as well as taking any special captain actions. Each card depicts what your ship will do on it. And there are three card types, moving, firing, and pivoting. Sorry, movement, fire, pivot cards. And there are some cards that combine both. So you might move and fire, or you might pivot, then move. Now, many of the movement cards also give the player the option to spend sails, which again is one of the three resources to move further. And every shot you make with those cannons is going to cost you a cannonball token. As is fitting for an Age of Sail game, cannons can normally only be fired out the sides of your ship. Some ships, of course, and captains have rules to have ways to break this rule, though. Now, when a ship is hit, the player takes a damage card and puts it into their discard. These clog up your deck and are worth negative points at the end of the game. Now, the shooting player also earns infamy based on where you've hit, with extra being uh, awarded for hits to the front or rear of your opponent's ship. Now, when moving about the board, players can pick up booty tokens. That's a sunken treasure, which will give them resources. Now, ships can only carry one token at a time, but these can be spent at any time for a single action, both in the island phase and the sea phase. Whenever someone claims some of this pirate booty, you're going to roll the dice and put a new token out on a random spot on the board. There are also rules for running into the rocks, ramming other ships, being turned around by whirlpools, or getting pushed by gusts of wind. And it's very important to remember that these seas are magical and wrap around at the edges of the board. Once everyone's played all their cards during the sea phase, you move on to another island phase, with players collecting more resources, improving their decks, claiming flags, etc., followed by another sea phase, and so on. So the game ends at the end of the round in which the last damage card is dealt to a player. You finish off that round completely using any additional damage cards as required, and then players total their infamy. You earn infamy during the game by shooting or ramming other opponents, as well as for some captain's abilities. At the end of the game, you get infamy for the cards you have purchased and completed ship upgrades. You lose points for damage cards still in your deck. So that just leaves the sea monster expansion part of this. So first off, this gives you two new captains that can be paired with any of the existing ships. Now, both of these captains do require that you use at least one of the optional sea monsters that are also part of this small expansion. Now, these sea monsters come in three forms. There are sharks, the sea serpent, and the kraken. Each of these comes with its own deck as well as wooden tokens. The sharks are in play during the island phase, showing up at it, different islands as throughout the game. And when you go there, you have to either uh, scare them away with a cannon shot, which earns you infamy, or take damage. Now, the Kraken and Sea Serpent are part of the sea phase and go on to the main board. You're going to put new tokens on the map. Now, shooting these features removes them from the map and earns infamy, but then you have to draw a card from the appropriate deck. These cards will have the sea monster attack or have you place more tokens out into the board. Now, each sea monster is unique, with the Kraken having tentacles placed on the board and eventually its head surfaces. Whereas the sea serpent starts with its head out and every around it moves and another hump uh, 
uh, gets added to the board trailing behind. Now, I first heard about Seas of Havoc when the Kickstarter was live. And we may have actually talked about it on a Sunday brunch episode. I can't remember if we did or not. I know I looked at it. And I guess I was personally drawn by the idea of these mechanics being combined. Mechanics I'll enjoy. You got a worker placement game. You got a deck building game. And you have programmed movement. I love program movement games in particular. And I've never seen these three mechanics combined in one game. Yeah, I was hesitant because Age of Sails and Pirates aren't really my jam. Neither is tactical combat, frankly. But... It was also a deck builder, so I was a little bit intrigued. Now, I didn't back at the time, um, and I didn't hear much about the game again until Rock Manor Games reached out looking to generate some buzz now that the Kickstarter was done and the production copies were out and the game was on the market. So I jumped at this chance to check it out. Now, the unboxing showed off some great components, but it, it still didn't sell me on the game. While nice, they weren't giving me any magic key to making this the game for me. Now, what I was impressed by in the unboxing was just how the, the, the quality of everything. I was impressed by what we were sent. Um, the Sea Monster edition we got, again, thanks, Brock Manor, is basically the retail version with the Monsters mini expansion added in. Like, there's no deluxe stuff here. There is a Captain's edition, which seems like it has some nice-to-have stuff, like a wooden chest and metal coins and, and, and things like that. But this is just additional content for the game that's in there. And I just, it's a Kickstarter, right? Anytime we get a Kickstarter, I'm always wary of games being underproduced um, and, and not polished, not, not play tested, not the designs kind of lacking or well, sometimes overproduced where it's all just flash and minis and fancy box inserts and the gameplay is lacking. And there was none of that here. Well, okay. The box insert wasn't great, but I mentioned that earlier. So this is where games like that can really go either way. While it looks great, there's just no real way to know if the game itself is great or completely broken based on what you pull out of the box. Now, thankfully, in this case, this was a real game and not a mess that hadn't been properly developed. Yeah, one of the most impressive things in this game, though, is the rule book. I, I don't call it rule books all that often. I always like to comment if they're good or bad, but this is one of the most best written, most clear rule books from a board game I've ever read. And what it's really good at is its succinctness. There's no words wasted. Um, and I got to appreciate the large font. I appreciate that as well. Because um, as you've heard in our overview of play, there's a lot going on in this game. But it was presented in a logical order that just made sense. They also included great reference cards for both normal games and when using AI ships. Reference cards, which actually help. And well, after a few plays, you may not need them. They are fantastic for new players uh, for your first few plays at the very least, as well as a quick reminder when you need it. Which leads me to the next highlight, which is how good this game plays at all player counts. I love the way you can play with up to three AI ships and the AI here works rather well. It, it doesn't feel forced and there's not, there's not a lot of questioning. Oh, should I do this or this? It was all very clear. You just draw a card and go through it. You can play solo versus one, two or three ships. You can play two players just battling each other, but you can also play two players with an AI ship, or you can play four ships, two humans and, and two AI, and you can all battle each other, or you could do two humans on the same team fighting against the AIs, turning it into a cooperative game. Even at four players, you could throw in an AI ship just for some chaos. I love any game that gives you sliders like this, ways to modify it to make the game different for different player counts and different player skills. So it turned out after my first play that I really enjoyed the game, despite a few things we did extreme, of course. 
as I often find, I could see the gold under the tarnish of our bad play. <laughs> this was a game that had some real meat to it. And I think the focus of that is the asymmetry. Yeah. And, and I gotta love the asymmetry and variability in Seas of Havoc. It, it's almost unprecedented. Everyone knows I love asymmetry, but this game is like dripping with it. Every captain is unique. Every ship is unique. And then every possible combination of those is going to give you a different experience. This game provides some recommended combos. And yes, some captains probably work better with some ships. But to me, that's a feature that was that combined with the different player count combinations means there are so many ways to play seas of havoc you probably no game would ever be similar to another this game just plays differently and forces you to play differently with different ships and captains you simply can't play the same game with the junk as with the ship of the line nor with the merchant or the pirate queen and then with the version we've got, you've got sea monsters. Those add even more variety because you can use one, two, three, or none of them. They can be used at any player count with or without AI. Like personally, I like to take, toss out at least one. I, I especially like one of the ones used in the sea phase because it gives more opportunity to score infamy than just shooting each other. I like that option and I can shoot the sea monster instead. And it's also good if you're like, you know, kind of off in the other corner of the map while players are battling it out somewhere. You don't feel too lost. There's something you can do. The really magical thing about these Seas of Havoc is how small you'll find them. You're going to be ramming or shooting something. Running and hiding just isn't an option, aside from the fact that you want the infamy for doing damage to other players anyway. Yeah, the board's really not that big, and the important thing that you're going to miss the first game, and it's worth pointing out to players multiple times while you're playing, the board wraps around. That's for both movement and cannon fire. Once you realize that, you realize just how small this map is. And honestly, I think that's a good design. It means people are going to be in conflict with each other, which is the core key of the game, which digs us to the actual gameplay of the game. I dig it. I dig it quite a bit. Um, to be fair, the description's long and it sounds complicated. And I'm like, I'm throwing out five different types of mechanics we're using at once, but it actually all just works well together. And it's pretty simple. There's just something about the flow of this game that feels elegant. You're going to use workers to get stuff. Then you're going to use the stuff to move around the board and shoot each other. Turns are quick. Um, I've never met anyone with a lot of AP while playing this game. Um, while there is a programmed movement aspect, it's never felt limiting. Like if you play, say, Robo Rally, sometimes you're like, all I can do is turn left. I've never had that problem in this game. Most movement cards give you multiple options. And yeah, now and then I'm like, oh, I wish I had this right card here. But that just led me to think, man, I need to buy more turning cards or I need to watch the market for a pivot card to come up. I never felt constrained. If there's a limit, it's actually usually the resources you you have as opposed to the cards. And the island phase can leave you struggling to find a way to use the cards you've got if you didn't collect the resources you needed or you spent the ones you did have. Now, one thing people may not like in this game is the randomness, right? They call this an age of sale game, and I almost hate doing that. It's like calling things a train game, right? Because it has a connotation, a war gamer connotation to it. That's not really what this is. That is part of it. This is a deck building game that is card driven and luck of the draw is a thing. Luck as to what comes up in the market, as well as what's in your hand in your deck. Due to the variability of the movement cards in the game, which is makes it a very tactical game. This is not a strategic game. The randomness of other players, what they do, the actions they take is big. You really can't predict what the board state will be. Not only like round to round, but turn to turn. Like you're going to play your one card, move your ship, and then everything could change before it gets back to you. 
Then there's the way things are placed on the board. Everything's randomly placed with 2D6 is doing a coordinate grid. Starting placement is affected by this. You can start, well, you wouldn't be starting facing a rock because you get to choose which way you're picking, but you could be between a rock and a hard place, basically. You could be nowhere near any of the sunken treasure. And the way the sunken treasure and shipwrecks work, as soon as someone grabs them, they randomly show up. If they keep randomly showing up right in front of another player, that can get a little annoying. Now, this randomness gets even more increased when you use sea monsters because where those tentacles and humps and heads are showing up is also randomized. Now, thankfully, I don't think the game goes full Ameritrash here. Um, you're not rolling to hit and rolling to defend or anything like that, but it is more random than you may think, especially for something calling itself an Age of Sail game. This is probably the biggest downfall of the game for me. There's all this meaty strategy and asymmetry and thoughtful action selection, but your best plans can be laid astray by a roll of the dice. It's more a blend, modern blend of American and Euro styles, but that's yeah. not for everyone out there. Some people prefer the determinism of a pure Euro without the randomness that can ruin well-laid plans. Now, as someone who loves program movement games, who digs deck building mechanics, and who's been in love with worker placement since Kalis, I've found a lot to like in Seas of Havoc. I, of course, also adore the asymmetry that is baked right in. While I am completely indifferent to the theme, uh, to be honest, I'd probably be more drawn to this if it was ships fighting around a gravity well. At least then the wrapping board would make more sense. I find myself enjoying every play of Seas of Havoc. Yeah, this game has a lot going on. And we've always said before that the age limit may be component-based. It's also not a kid's game by any means. This is a mid-weight game, but not, uh, not light fare. Additionally, it can be frustrating when people are perceived as picking on you, but you're going to need to learn that if someone is in front of your cannons, you shoot them and they'll do yeah. the same as the, because it's the primary means of gaining infamy. Now, this can certainly make for some awkward nights at the dinner table if you've been <laughs> unloading your ship of the line's heavy cannon on your kids. Now, overall, Seas of Havoc's been a hit with everyone I played it with, though it does appeal to some players more than others. I personally really dig it. My wife is pretty indifferent, and as you've heard, Sean likes parts of it more than others. Local gamers I played with have enjoyed it. I've had no one that said they had a bad time, and I've actually had two people request I bring it out to future events so they can explore it more. For me, it's the exploration that I'm really interested in, trying out the different ship captain and ship combos. But I'm not sure after exploring all those combos, how much I'll be eager to keep playing it. Now, there may be a combination that sits perfectly with me and keeps me coming back. But for the moment, I haven't found that one. So I got to say, if you're going to try every possible combination, it's a ridiculous amount. I did six to the power of six, whatever that works out to six factorial. That's six times five times four times three times two times one. I didn't do the math. I think that's how you calculate that one. What I will do is I hadn't called it out before. One of the things that's included in the box is a little checklist so that you can actually match them off and put down your score to see how you've been doing. So there's definitely an achievement seeker aspect of the game that I think is going to appeal to some people. If you're a fan of any of the core mechanics here, if you like deck building or if you like worker placement games or if you dig naval battle games, you probably find a way to try out Seas of Havoc if you can. The worker placement works great. The deck building is interesting and well done. And I, I particularly that flag driven combo system is kind of neat. You get this and like they're powerful. They're like scrap a card in your deck, take an extra turn, get free resources. You can build a deck combo with flags. It's really neat. Program movement's interesting. And what I like is it's not limiting. 
You're not stuck with only left and right turns, right? It's generally a move forward and turn. It, it, it's pretty open compared to other program movement games. And I got to say, I dig the naval battle aspects, but again, it's light. This is light naval battle. You're, you're not looking at a historical recreation. Yeah, this definitely isn't going to give you the full-on Age of Sail, piracy on the high seas, historical battles. It does, however, scratch a similar itch in shorter form. Now, if you dig all those mechanics and love asymmetry, if you're like me, if you like the same kind of games as me, you should probably pick this one up. Just be aware of the tactical nature of the game. This is, again, not a historical simulation anyway. This is more of a fast and furious sea battle between asymmetric pirates that's being played in about an hour. You're not going to be worrying about tacking the wind or running up more sheets to escape. It's much more likely you're going to be slamming into anyone and everyone near you in order to uh, gain more infamy. Now, if you collect pirate games and just love everything pirates, I think Seas of Havoc will probably be a hit. Despite combining multiple different popular board game mechanics, the game itself is quite straightforward and has a great flow. Even with its weight, I think the game this is a game many players are going to enjoy regardless of their experience level. Like, honestly, I look at this one. I know Sean was talking about playing with kids, but I think 10-year-old me would have loved this game. The nice thing about it is, while it has a little bit of weight, if you're not being super aggressively competitive, it works as a slightly lighter game. Finally, be aware this isn't for everyone. This is not a quick, rapid-fire dice chucker with cannonballs firing left and right. Nor is it a deep resource management euro about customizing your ship. If you don't like any of the core mechanics, I can't see Seas of Havoc winning you over. Which is the combination. It's it just the combination of them aren't like they're all there, but they're always used in very pure ways. So you're, you're, there's no innovation in the deck building, no innovation in the worker placement. All of that's the fact they combined all these together into a naval war game that really sticks out as something new and unique. The actual individual parts, though, are pretty straightforward. Well, there you have our thoughts on Seas of Havoc from Rock Manor Game, one of many pirate games out there on the market, but one that takes a uh, takes a variety of popular Euro mechanics and combines them in a new way. Now, what's your favorite pirate-themed board game? Tell us about it in the comments. Or better yet, join our Discord at discord.tabletopbellhop.com and strike up a conversation there. And now in the Bellhop Tabletop, where we look back at the games we played since last episode long, long ago. Yes. Uh, well, we haven't been here recording. We have been very busy. Uh, even Sean's been traveling all over for work, so there hasn't been a lot of gaming going on since we were last here. Now, that said... We did get in one day full of gaming last Sunday. We decided we we're going to toss everything in the wind, not go online. We're just going to play some games and have some good food. So the three of us met up for breakfast then played a couple of games at a new to us coffee shop and then wrapped up the night playing some games on my dining room table. Literally the first physical blink games I'd played in over a month. So first up was one of the games from the Bah Humbug in the 12 Games of Christmas box set. Uh, what you can see over my shoulder here, this is something we brought home, a prototype copy um, from Origins. And I think we mentioned um, on a previous Bellhops tabletop that I tried it out at everybody's place. And interestingly, the publisher listened to that episode. And uh, and I noted, and I don't know if people remember, but that was the game where I had sat there and there's 12 different games in here and there's cards for the games. And I shuffled them all and drew one and it said something like coming soon. And I was like, oh, this is more of a prototype than I thought. Well, it ends up that the cards, yes, do have a summary of each game. There is supposed to be a rule book in there with full instructions. So thank you to Weird Giraffe Games for sending me a PDF of the most up-to-date version of the rule book. And yes, sure enough, the, the game we had played there, instead of being on the back of one card, had three to four pages 
to describe it and um, so much more than the text on a small card. So we did note that there are still some small issues in this rule book. Remember, this game isn't actually getting printed until next Christmas. We're in yes. prototype form and they've still got a little ways to go. Yeah. So what, what happened was we I, I'm like, I wanted to show Sean and Deanna the, the game I had played before, um, which I'm totally drawing a blank on and I'm sure it's in the notes somewhere. Um, I wanted to show off what we had played before. I think it was called The Giving Time, something like that. And I'm like, okay, so here and 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 I set everything up because I again I played this with with Weird and Fee, and I thought I was good to go. And then I grabbed the rule book because I, I couldn't remember how many cards that the people got at the beginning of the game. And I look and I'm like, oh wait, this is different. This is is this is very odd. This has actually changed. Like like okay, you don't even play it the same. Like the postman isn't a card that goes into people's hands. And you're 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 putting cards in the post box every round now. I'm like, what the heck? Plus, unfortunately, the rule book again. The, this game's still under development, so the rule book seemed to be a mix of both what I had originally played and the new stuff. Because I ended up actually by the end at the end of the game, I was like, Sean, here you look at this. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Yeah, no, and it was there was definitely some. Wait, it said, but we did. But how do you? But you can't. Yeah. That doesn't. Oh, no. Uh, but aside from that. <laughs> ignoring the 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 prototype rulebook which I admit is a prototype uh yep. it's a solid game uh the giving where is where is the, the giving, giving spirit, spirit. uh yep. is is the game and again this is just a solid game that i would be happy if i opened up this box and this was the game i got yeah the fact that there's yeah, 11 the other games in this box well is is extra <laughs> yeah there's 13 games cuz bah humbug and the 12 games of christmas right so the box includes Bah Humbug, which is a previously published game that has its own rating and people like it and whatever. And it's 12 more games. So yeah, The Giving Spirit is the one I described it before, so I'm not going to get into it, but it's three to six players. It's a mashup of Trick Taker and Set Collection Tableau Builder, where, you know, you're playing your cards and if you win a trick, you have to put them in a tableau and you don't want the most of stuff. And I guess it's still good. Uh, they, they did modify some stuff. And at first I didn't like it just because I like the other one. And except for a change in the scoring that just is how you do the scoring, uh, the new version was better. So it's what I got to say is, is as someone on the outside, it's great to see that the development is still happening because they knew they weren't going to be ready for this Christmas. So instead of rushing the game out, they decided. So I think I said weird giraffe. It's small furry games. Small furry games actually took the time to to change it right they fixed the game and improved it which i gotta say is rather nice yeah no absolutely this was this was a good game and i mean you know it, it was easy enough to play on coffee on you know coffee shop tables uh mm -hmm. just great solid game and, and not you know it's at that level where you can sit and enjoy a cup of coffee and chat and play all at the same mm -hmm. time it's that level of social game that's really nice Next up, we picked one more game to play. Uh, this one was listed as three to four players. So Deanna actually is the one. She took the cards, filtered it out. So we had the three to four ga player games and, and licked. And, and, and I think it was the name that caught her eye. Uh, this one's called Deck Build the Halls. So this is, as you'd expect, a deck building game. But it mashed up deck building with trick taking, which I don't think I've seen before. Now, I don't think all of the 12 games of Christmas are trick taking games. I think this was coincidental, but I'm not sure. Uh, this one was weird, though. Like, it, it was deck building with trick taking. So you had a market and there was a resource, which were berries that you used to buy cards in the market to add to your deck. But then you took your deck and every turn you had a hand of five cards. You played a card to the table uh, as a trick taking game, right? You'd lead a card and then other people would play. And then the person who had the lowest card was considered the rarest ornament. 
would get the card that the highest, like the worst ornament would go into their deck. The other player would get berries and in between you could buy new cards. And like, I, I realized is a terrible summary, but it was neat. Like it, it worked. I'm like, oh, this is cool. It's deck building with trick taking, which I've never seen. So, so kind of to go with our theme from the earlier review with deck building being mashed with other things. I don't think I've ever seen a deck building trick taker and, and it worked pretty well. Well, and the other, the other one mechanic that you didn't mention there was when you played your card into the, uh, onto the table, you also had to discard a card. So there was just yes. constant extra cycle. You were always playing two cards. Uh, so yeah, I sort of had to plan for the future and think about what cards you wanted to keep for later versus what yep. cards you wanted to keep in your hand and possibly play into tricks. Uh, really, and really, just again, like tonight, that rule's really easy to forget for some people. I never remember this yes. card. Uh, but it was, it, it made for a, a nice little interesting twist. And again, a perfectly solid game that if you picked up a deck of cards from a store, you would be happy if this was the game that you got with it. Yeah, its own. No, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so far, every game I played from this set, and uh, we're, we're just checking out two of them so far, is really neat and well done. And I would be happy if I bought them as complete games. I don't know what the price point would be. Maybe 15 bucks, maybe 10. Um, I'm really digging it. Um, like I, I think these are fantastic games. I do think I do think the trick taking uh, deck builder could have used the fourth player. Um, yeah, three players. It wasn't you know ideal, but it worked. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong yeah. with it. I just felt it could have been stronger with the with more players. Yeah, I could see that. And I got to say, there's some neat design going here. Like I, each of these twelve games was made by a different person. That's part of what this is. And the designer of this one, which sorry, I should have noted it down in the notes. I don't have it in front of me. My apologies. It's just a, like the, the the thought process in that game was neat. Because you generally like want to buy low value cards, but the whole thing in this game was any card with a bird on it was worth nothing because birds were out of fashion that year. So you didn't want to collect any birds. Well, the low value cards tended to have birds on them. But then if you had low value cards, you would win more tricks, which would win the high value cards, which are technically, I guess, the bad cards off other play. Like it was just funky. Like the, I honestly, I don't think any of us figured out how to play that game. Well, we just went through the motions of playing that game when we played it. Mm-hmm. First play, you never know. So I got to say, if, if all 12 of these games are this good, this is going to be a steal at, at any price. Like, yeah. this is just fantastic. 100%. So I'm looking forward to more Bah Humbug. We, we got to try. I don't know if we're going to play all 12 before we review it. I, wa- I want to get through. Well, we like to play games at least five times. Maybe we'll play five different games. Maybe we'll play six. We do have to play Bah Humbug at some point because that is like a fully completed game. That was the whole deal here was this is the new printing of Bah Humbug, but we're also going to include... 12 indie games using the same card. So I'm looking forward to trying Bah Humbug. Yeah, so we're not going to play Bah Humbug five times and then 60 other plays of the 12 Yes, <laughs> not, not going to happen. Definitely <laughs> okay. not happening. If we do, it, we're strongly going to re- recommend everyone pick it up <laughs> if we get 60 plays out of one game. Uh, next up was two games of Seas of Havoc. Uh, that was basically in prep for tonight's review. Uh, first three-player game, just to try three players because we hadn't done that before and then we wanted to try out the monsters. Uh, excuse me. We wanted to try out the monsters. Uh, the monsters we tried out were specifically the Kraken and the Sharks. Uh, I don't know. The Sharks were eh, whatever, but I liked the Kraken a lot. Yeah, the problem um, with the Sharks was um, the deck, after being shuffled, just turned out to have the Sharks go march along you know, through all the islands in order, which was kind yeah. of disappointing. There was no real, it didn't feel random. It just felt like, you know, okay, was, you move though. the Shark to the next one, even though they were randomly pulled from a deck. Uh, yeah. So just again, shows the randomness in that game. Yeah. I don't know. It was interesting enough. I, I, I kind of like that people could get damaged on the islands, which could, could affect things. 
Like I was thinking uh, there was a particular character I played before that takes no damage as long as they have a damage card on top of their deck. And I'm like, there'd be a strategy there to go somewhere with the shark to specifically have a damage card so that when they start the sea phase, you're defended. Like there's some interesting stuff in that game that I think is really going to show up with more plays. Yeah. Again, now after I mean, you know, the first time we played this, um, there was a lot going on. It'd be a five player game. We were all learning the mechanics and things. And, and as we discussed in the review, you know, there was some extreme play going on. Uh, so this time, now that I felt more comfortable and with only three players, I was noticing more of the Ameritrash side of it. The the randomness of where things started and things like that showed up more uh, to me than right. I had seen in the past. And I still think that's the side of it that are going to turn some people off. Because other than that, it's <laughs> such a Euro. Like, there, there's so mm. many Euro mechanics and so many Euro features that just get sidelined by a roll of the dice here or there. Uh, last up would be uh, a learning game of Marrakesh, even though it was our third play for Deanna and I. Uh, but we messed up a pretty important turn sequence mechanic, something that's kind of core to the game. Um, we did sit and discuss it at the time and kind of figured it probably wouldn't have impacted the final scores of the game much. And we're not sure how much of an impact it actually made on the game. But there are there is a reason. And I'm going to call it out just in case I don't want anyone else to make this mistake. So there's a phase in the game where you've already you've drafted your cashies, you put stuff on your board and you're now taking your turn. And part of this game is a worker placement mechanic where you put three workers on your player board and you get to a point where you're going to activate a worker and you're either going to grab a cashier or do the spot they're on. And there are 12 of these spots. Well, the way we were playing it was the start player activates a worker, activates their spotter, takes their cashier. Then it goes to the next player who activates a worker, again, taking a cashier, activating the spot and go around the board until everyone's done this three times and all their workers are used up. Well, it ends up that's not how you play. The actual way you play is the first player activates their three workers in any order they're choosing. Then it goes to the next player who activates their three workers in any order they're choosing. Now, for 75 percent or more, it doesn't matter. Most of these actions are like take a resource or do something very multiplayer solitaire. Like I'm going to pay for this end game scoring thing and put it on this part of my board, or I'm going to move up this track and it doesn't affect anyone else. But there are a couple key places uh, in particular with the buying of scrolls and the buying of luxury goods where this matters, especially if someone's trying to get a specific tile before someone else. So again, I don't think it had a huge impact on our game. But be aware when playing Marrakesh, it's not you each use one action and then pass and go around. It's do all three of your people go to the next player, do all three of your people. And I've got to say one thing it would do is this would speed up the game. And actually, I think that's a good thing because the game's not overly long, but I, I think that would actually make it a little quicker. And I think it's going to make your turns actually more interesting, especially in that market phase where you're trying to figure out or even moving up on the tracks is do I move up on the track to then get the thing? And then activate this thing because I now have the catchy from going up the track. I think there's going to be a little bit more interesting play. Now, D and I have played three times. I'm loving it. Um, it it's felled. It's, it's a felled point salad. It's queen games production quality. It's ridiculous number of components. There are so many little tiles. Oh, it's it, it's everything I like in a Stefan Feld. This, this may be. I'm still trying to decide. Sometime I got to sit down. And Sean and I and D have to play Amerigo so I can decide if I like this better because it may be my favorite felt. But Sean, I don't even know if you've played a Steffenfeld before out of all the ones I own. So what do you think? Um, I, 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 I'm not a, a, I don't know, a Feldian. What do you, what do you call a worshiper <laughs> of felt? I don't even, again, this is a solid game. This is, this is a really good, you know, pure Euro game as we were just talking about it. And that's, and yeah. that's fantastic. Um, is it, I, for, I, and I, I don't even know what the difference is. Like, I'm liking heavier games more. Uh, you know, yep. again, 
we played Weather Machine, which is like super heavy. And, and I really dug that and have always wanted to get back to it. But, you know, it's not a review copy, so we aren't going to see it again. But <laughs> um, but this game, I, I don't know what it was about it. Now, first off, I, I mean, I was so deep in the weeds, it wasn't funny. It was literally just trying to figure out all the different things I could do. There was never mm. a chance that I was going to, you know, excel at the game because there's a lot to learn about what to yeah. do. Whereas D was already at the point where she was memorizing what all the different cards do so that she could build up some giant engine that would wrap her around the board a second time. Uh, and I was nowhere near at a point where I even cared what was on those cards. Uh, yeah. those, those tiles were, you know, something I could occasionally buy. And if I had that opportunity, I would look over and see what was there. Planning in advance was not in the cards for me. Um, that being said, I, again, I, I just, there was something about it that didn't click with me. And maybe it was because it was the Fair. first, the first point. Uh, but I, you know, I've played Marrakesh once and I've played Weather Machine once. And I would rather play Weather Machine again than Marrakesh based on one singular play of each. Yeah. So that's it. That That's all we played. I know we haven't been here for a long time. Again, I've been, I played some Shadowrun Returns and I played some FTL, but board game wise, uh, that's all we've been able to squeeze in. But hopefully, um, as we get into the holidays, it might be similar, but maybe we can get some more plays in. We got to get back to like getting out at least once a week. Um, for those who are local, there is going to be a barbershop bar gaming event. On the 23rd, that is a Saturday. Yes, we know it's really close to the holidays, but you know what? There's a lot of people who don't have family plans this time of year, and it's a great way to get out and be with other people and socialize at a time of the year that can be difficult for some people. And I've got to say, I don't think there's anywhere more accepting than the barbershop bar for people in that situation. Now, as for the coming weeks, we're going to be busy, of course, and we still have contractors showing at our house randomly. Um, I have no idea. When when our when uh, our carpenter is supposed to be back, he showed up the other day and couldn't find his mud, so couldn't finish the job. And I haven't heard from him for two days, so that's that's random. Um, I, I who knows if anything might hit our table or not in the coming weeks, but we're gonna try. Um, what I do need to do just to get caught up and get going is some unboxing videos. Um, I've got a nice shiny copy of the ART project from the op sitting right here, as well as the latest Valeria games and everything we still brought back from Origins back there. So I think what I'm going to try really hard to do this coming week is try to squeeze in a unboxing day, if not. And then hopefully we can find another day like sun, Saturday Sunday. to get together and play some games together uh, before the holidays fully engulf us for a couple weeks there. Well, before we start locking things down, let's take a moment to thank a selection of our tabletop bellhop Patreon patrons. Their support helps keep this show going. So first off, a big welcome to our newest Patreon patron. Hello, Brian. Uh, this time, just Brian. No other name was given. They join our awesome other Brian patrons. Uh, we're going to try to Pokemon this. If you are a Brian, please come support our show. Welcome, new Brian. Thank you for your support. Uh, Danielle Owen Thomas, thank you very much. In the chat room tonight, always appreciate you being here with us live. Sean P. Kelly. Thank you, Sean. Gaming and BS, I remember. Yes. <laughs> Derek Hisson. Thank you, Derek. Andrew Dacey. Thank you, Andrew. Well, that was the double bell. That means our shift's coming to an end, and it's time to lock the lobby doors. Though the doors are closed, you can always find us at tabletopbellhop.com, all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, and on your podcatcher of choice as the Tabletop Bellhop gaming podcast. And a little note, just don't forget, Google Podcatcher is going away. Yes, find a new way to listen to us, I guess. 
Uh, if you did enjoy the show tonight and have consumed our other content, dig our gaming deals, well, however you choose to consume us, that sounded weird, um, just head over to patreon.com slash tabletop bellhop and please consider tipping your bellhop. Well, that's all for us tonight. If you enjoy our content, leave us a holiday gift in the form of a like, a thumbs up, or better yet, a review on your podcatcher of choice. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And, and game, game on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG and Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. 